Welcome to the Hybrid Theory Podcast, where we discuss everything in relation to youth sports, youth development, uh, and athletics in general. Today's topic is the youth sporting landscape. Where are we currently? Primarily, we're going to discuss uh, what the travel circuit largely encompasses. Um, in addition to that, just things attached to the travel circuit that is causing the travel circuit to be what it is. Um, and a couple of different uh, key items that you need to be on the lookout for, especially um, this coming season and future seasons as the market is ever changing, which means that the demand is ever changing, which means that uh, a lot of the things that are going to be required for you, the requirements are now going to be changing for what you will need to have in order to be able to sustain and compete at higher up levels. So let's break down the environment. Let's break down the market a little bit. We've already discussed that uh, we're spending thousands of dollars, um, but ultimately let's break down the system. Clubs, travel teams, competitive travel teams, elite travel teams, nowadays all comes down to branding. Um, it's less of, um, let's, let's put out a truth out there, a fact. Um, a lot of clubs, a lot of travel teams, a lot of competitive teams do not develop players. Why don't they develop players or why do I believe that they don't develop players? What is my theory behind it? It's because it's not advantageous to the market. It's not advantageous to the brand. The brand is about providing competition. It's about providing competition and it's pro about providing opportunity. So in order for me to provide competition and opportunity, I then have to have some semblance of control over who is attached to the market, who is in the market which means that I now need to be trying to recruit the best talent possible in order to be able to sustain myself from a competitive standpoint to elevate said brand, right? So largely what a lot of these clubs do nowadays um, and, you know, the league structures as well, um, great from a marketing standpoint, great from a business standpoint, but what they're advertising to you, you're not getting. One, a lot of coaches are actually underpaid. Right, a lot of your head coaches, your assistant coaches, which is one of the reasons why they have to coach three, two to three teams in order to be able to make somewhat semblance of uh, some resemblance of of minimum wage, which is kind of ridiculous. Um, in addition to that, the way that a lot of club structures are set up now is you almost have like six tiers of teams for one age group. So if you got a U fifteen age group, you now have the A team or um, you know, uh, uh, U15 red and then U15 blue and then U15 green. And you have all of these, all of the same age group. So now the top team is competing in the top league or what is considered to be the top league, because then that is a whole nother monopoly that we will address shortly. So now they're attempting to compete in the top tier, you know, division or league or whatever the case may be. And so then now you have, teams underneath that now what they continue to advertise is oh yeah you know if your kid isn't good enough for this particular team you will get a chance or opportunity however the problem with that is because of the pay to play environment parents are going to gripe and complain because well why is this kid you know this kid is paying for you know they're a third tier player why are they able to just pay money and you know get bumped up to first tier when i'm paying money and my daughter or my son isn't getting an opportunity or whatever the case may be so Clubs, again, have resorted to branding rather than development. Development actually takes time. Development takes uh, uh, proper programming. Development takes, you know, it's 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 a 
it's a plan, right? It's, it's, it's not short-term and instantaneous. This is one of the reasons why so many kids, so many of your kids and so many of you jump from team to team, club to club, travel team to travel team, because you are not getting everything that they are advertising that you were supposed to get, which is development, right? So when we focus on branding, we say, okay, I, as a brand, as essentially a company, even though they're supposed to be 501c3s, they're essentially acting like LLCs. So I, as a brand, I, as a company, and then going to say, okay, I'm going to give you the opportunity to go to this tournament, this tournament, this tournament, so that way you can be seen. I'm also going to give you top tier professional type coaching when a lot of these coaches don't even have professional, full on professional licensure. Um, so it's it's one of those things where as a brand, I say, okay, how can I continue to elevate my brand? Okay, I need to have, let's say hypothetically speaking, uh, I need to have 5,000 kids in my system. If I have 5,000 kids in my system, I essentially monopolize, monopolize the rest of the market surrounding me. So if I've got, if there's 10,000 kids on the market of five or six age groups, and I monopolize that market, and I take 7,000 of them off the board, which only leaves 3,000 for the, the rest of the surrounding market, that means that they then can't compete with me from a financial standpoint, right? So they don't have the same level of resources. They don't have the same capacity to be able to bring on all these coaches or whatever and host all these camps and and have uh, money in excess to be able to host whatever tournaments, whatever the case may be. Um, so then my club, quote unquote, my travel team, my brand is then elevated because now it's like, well, all of these one more coaches then want to join that particular brand, right? Because they see, okay, well, there may be a slight pay bump. Maybe I'll get an extra thousand. Addition to that, you're then able to take the best players, right? So if all of the best players, let's say, and one particular age group, there are 50 top tier players. If I take 25 of those players off of the market and I put them in my system, where do you think the rest of the players are then going to follow? They're going to be like, well, all of these players are going here. So maybe I should go there as well. They're not taking the less, less advantageous route because it doesn't look as pretty. Right? It's not as colorful. The brand isn't as pretty. So it's like, all well, there's seven girls or seven boys who are all playing for this team, whether it's MLS Next, whether it's ECNL, whether it's an AAU team, and they're all playing for this one team. I need to be there, right? And that can be a hindrance. Coinciding with that, parents will adopt that, that semblance of mindset as well. They'll say, okay, well, this girl, she just got recruited to Duke. So we need to be with this coach because this is the coach that helped her, whatever. When in reality, that girl may have joined mid-season, right? And had already had interest from two years prior. All he did was give her a system that allowed her to be able to fl flourish. Essentially, he just plucked her or he just plucked him or she just plucked her or plucked him put them into the system. They scored additional 15 goals or she scores, he, she scores additional 15 goals or uh, starts averaging 20 points per game, whatever the case may be. And now all of a sudden their market, their, their exposure has increased, right? Their market value has increased. That's the, the, the phrase that I was looking for. Um, so when it comes to that, that's essentially how it works. 
a lot of you don't realize that it's a recruitment process, even at club, right? If it was really about competition, if it was really about how good or elite or competitive a club was, they would look to develop their players. There's a reason why a majority of clubs have less than 50% of players that come into the system at early ages actually be able to actually stay with said club for three years. You think I'm lying? Well, look at your club. Look at how many players have gone three, four, five, six years within the system. It's very, very few. And don't count the year that, you know, they left for a year, you know, and then came back. No. Did you stay consecutively for four or five years on end and then move? You're not going to see too many of those. And it's going to continue to be that way because, again, the branding is going to increase. So now the social media presence, the hype videos, the, oh, we just brought in this, you know, technical trainer from Brazil or whatever the case may be. And so now everyone needs to be at that whatever, or we just brought in this guy who played in the NBA or whatever. We need to be at this, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So at the end of the day, again, it's about branding. It's about a dollar sign. So we established that. On the opposite end, you have tournaments, competitions, leagues, all competing and vying for one another where they're basically popping up. Investment is going in. If I remember correctly, I think DA had a $10 million investment, the Development Academy, um, which went haywire. It, it basically uh, uh, imploded. Um you know, after two years or whatever the case may be, especially on the on the on the women's side, and and cause the a ripple within the um uh, the girls division, especially the boys. You know, were able to clutch on to MLS next, and in a year or two, is that going to be the competition of choice? Lord knows, because at this point, you can't even tell which one is the top competition. All of them are saying the same thing, and this starts from top to bottom. If you look at it, right, USL is saying we're the top league in soccer. Right. We're going to compete neck and neck with MLS versus, OK, we're going to, you know, do relegation. And that's primarily because MLS doesn't want to do relegation. They just want to have as many teams as humanly possible, adopt the same system as, um, you know, the NBA structure, as the uh, NFL structure and say, we're just going to have a whole bunch of teams and they won't get relegated because, again, it's about money. It's about the business model. Um, owners don't want to lose revenue. They want to take that chance, whatever. So it reduces said excitement to the league. USL is saying, okay, well, we can provide that excitement. We're going to do potentially, you know, promotion relegation. Um, and that will determine, you know, who's the best, who's the elite. And in competition with that, on the women's side, you have NWSL, their own independent professional league. And then you also now have um, the... Uh, if I correct me if I'm wrong, but the USL S League, right, which is supposed to be a direct competitor. So you have two professional soccer leagues that are supposed to be the best, two professional women's soccer leagues that are supposed to be the best. How does that work? And you're seeing that trickle on into the youth system. So you have ECNL saying we're the best league. You have MLS Next saying we're the best league. You have, uh, uh, um, you know, D parts of GA, you know, they're saying we're the best league or whatever. And who's to say that they truly are now from a branding and marketing perspective, MLS next and ECNL would have that easy, especially ECNL for the girl side, MLS next for the boy side. Cool. But is the quality on the field 
whether from a technical perspective, whether from a, a player performance perspective, a developmental perspective, whatever, is that is that the true definition of um, elite? Is that the true definition of competition? Because if I just take all the best players and I put them onto an all-star team, and I say, all right, we're going to like, it's, it's the whole concept within the NBA where you have the, the super team, right? Where you are, um, you know, you have, uh, uh, you know, let's say you have LeBron, Steph Curry, KD, um, Jokic, and uh, 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 let's say Giannis all on the same team. Like, why why wouldn't they do well? And the problem is people don't want to go the route, which is why we make it such a big thing when we see, you know, said teams like, you know, the Bucks or uh, uh, Denver. Oh, they drafted. They did it the right way or whatever the case may be, because people at the end of the day want that semblance of competition. They want to feel like things are equal and you had to go against the grain in order to be able to dominate when you had to develop your own structure instead of just being buddy buddy with everyone. And unfortunately, that's just the way that it is. It's like, okay, well, this person could provide me an opportunity, so I'm going to go here next year. And then that person could provide me with opportunity, so I'm going to go here next year. And you're constantly jumping back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And you're still not getting what you're supposed to get. So each year, this is continuing to happen, and you're still not getting enough. So you have these tournaments, you know, you have these, these leagues perfectly branded, and the way that the brand works is the more that you can see the brand, the better the brand becomes. So what do you think they do? They add more games. They add more showcases. They add more, um, you know, special tournaments or whatever. Um, at the end of the season, it, as long as you finish within the top four of your conference, you're guaranteed to go to nationals in some capacity. So you have your top tier bracket for number one, and then second and third, they go to a separate nationals competition. And then number four, they go to a separate nationals. Like, it's crazy. So that all with with the desire to be the top league, with the desire to be the top club, with the desire to be the top tournament structure, whatever the case may be, or to be elite, what happens is we now have an influx of more games, more practices, more, more, more. And so then that has an adverse effect directly on our athletes, our youth athletes, because now we just we want more. Now it's not enough for us to, and then that's also another thing. Everybody wants to play against everyone and believe that they should have the capacity to play against any and everyone simply because they are elite, but then we'll duck said competition or avoid the legible competition within their area. So they'll claim that they're the best team in the area, the best, you know, age group in the area, whatever the case may be. And they will literally avoid other teams they'll go to tournaments and they'll avoid that team to unturn to a different bracket or whatever because what happens to your brand if i lose my team loses against another brand what do you think your first thought is going to be as a parent well we lost to that team so my kid needs to go to that team and the only reason why this happens is because there's no true developmental plan because you could lose to a team earlier in the season and then see them later in the season and beat them by a large margin. But people don't see it that way. They're like, ah, I think we made the wrong choice. I think we need to jump ship. And it's always the immediate, immediate response in a lot of instances, right? Which puts a lot of pressure on coaches as well. 
especially if you're playing against a rival or whatever. It's like, you know, Maryland United is playing against Bethesda or whatever the case may be. So there's no sem- semblance of competition where I, as a coach, I'm telling my team, look, these are the games that we got set. We're going to play the best, the best supposed best team in our division or whatever. And then we're going to work our way up into playing people outside of our region. In addition to that, the way that the leagues are structured, it's designed to give you more of a quote unquote professional experience. So they have you in conferences or in uh, districts or whatever the case may be where you are now playing, you know, driving three hours at a time for games. When you have another team in another conference that's closer to you, makes no sense. Like ECNL has this, you know, the Mid-Atlantic and North Atlantic. And you got teams of Virginia not playing against teams in Maryland, even though Maryland and Virginia is only 45 minutes. All of the teams are 45 minutes away from each other. But you now have the Maryland teams playing against the Pennsylvania and New Jersey teams, which are three hours away. And instead of them playing against the New York teams, yada, yada, now you got the you also have the Virginia teams now playing against the North Carolinas or whatever. So that's three hours. Why are we stretching these kids so far? Why are we taking them so far when you could just play against the best up the road, earn your spot and then say, okay, we beat the best in our area for this year. So now we've deserved to go to nationals. Now we deserve to go to XYZ competition or whatever, but that's not how it works. So again, we got the clubs and the branding. We got the leagues and tournaments, the branding. And then we have the parents. Parents, you're asking for a lot. And you're asking for a lot, but don't truly know exactly what is necessary to ask for or know exactly what you want. And so part of this has allowed the market to get to where it is. We could blame clubs all day long. We could blame parents all day long. We could blame leagues all day long. We could blame U.S. soccer, whatever the case may be. But at the end of the day, we have to look at how all of us have contributed towards what it is now. And the reality of it is, parents, you've played a decent part in this. Again, you are the consumer. You are the customer. And the customer is always right, as they continue to say. So if you have demanded and asked for this, this is now where where it has gone. They looked at what you wanted. They say they want more practices. They want more games. They want, why are you playing more games if you're not getting anything out of it? Your kids, I want you to think about this. Your kids are playing games at like 50%, 40%. It's true. Think about it. When was the last time? I'll, I'll revise. Think about this. You've seen your kids and they've done preseason and they've done all this type of training or whatever, and you believe them to be somewhat relatively fit, but then they get in the game and they can barely last 30 minutes. And you're like, you got to work on your fitness. They've been doing nothing but running. They've ran Cooper tests. They've ran short, short, long tests. They've ran the Man United test. They've done all types of running. What type of conditioning? You do know that you have to be conditioned to be able to do that, right? There has to be some semblance of conditioning. So we're not really missing anything in terms of a conditioning standpoint. The difference is the programming is terrible. They're not building your kids up to the capacity of being able to play 70, 80, 90 minutes or 45 minutes or whatever the case may be. They're just running them ragged. And then when it comes down to them actually putting a ball in their hands or ball at their feet or whatever, they can't perform. 
they can't perform because they've they, their body isn't adjusted to it. The body hasn't think about this. Preseason is right around the corner. Right? You've played all of these games. Preseason is right around the corner. The first thing that they're going to do, they're not going to have a practice. They're just going to, if anything, they're just going to throw them out for running for 45 minutes and say, okay, yeah, you know, they need to get fit. They need to be able to run and blah, blah, blah. And then the very first preseason game, they're going to play a large majority of the players for 60, 70 minutes when they're not conditioned to be able to do that. Right. They're not going to rotate squads. They're not just going to say, okay, we'll do two 30 minute halves. One half of the team will play 30 minutes. The other half of the team will play 30 minutes and then go organize another game next week and say, okay, now you're going to play 40 minutes and then the next group plays 40 minutes and then we're going to play 45 and then 50 and then et cetera, et cetera. And then gradually build everyone into a match fitness capacity. And that comes from, again, you want more, you want more games, you want more practices, but you didn't ask for better quality training and better education for the coaches who are actually implementing said programs, right? You want your kids to get faster. I hit us all the time. Right. Uh, parents come to me f- uh, for individual training and say, I want my kid to get faster. OK, cool. And then I'll say, well, I need you to commit three months. And for these three months, I need you to come in three times a week. Oh, well, practice and blah, blah, blah. Exactly. How do you believe speed is achieved? Do you know the formula for speed? Do you know the formula for being able to get a player or an athlete quicker? There's time that we have to commit to this. Oh, well, I want my, my kid to get stronger. I want their their shot to improve or whatever. Okay, cool. So again, I want you to come in first month, three times a week. Oh, well, we can't do that. You know, he's got school and then he's got a curriculum. He got break. So exactly what what program do you expect me to run in order to be able to get his his kick further? How do you expect me to do that if you're not able to commit the time? And that's what's happened. So now your kids don't have any time to work on their game. They don't have time to to really do much by themselves. They're getting out of school or going into school, 7, 30, 8 o'clock, getting out of school, 3, 30, 4 o'clock in some instances, then going straight into practice and then they have homework. So what time do they have to work on their one-on-one stuff? They got two games a weekend. What time do they got? They don't have any time. In all honesty, they barely have time to be kids. Most programs aren't really offering physical education anymore. And the physical education instructors, large by margin, are not trained in modern methodologies. They're still trained from 10, 20 years ago. So those methods are out of date. There's too much wear and tear to not taking into consideration what the what a lot of these kids are going through, which is majority of them are now student athletes um, or athletes in general. In order for you to your kids to actually be able to make friends, majority of them are friends from their club or, you know, tournament or social media. They've been following their videos or whatever the case may be. So, again, you've contributed towards what is going on. Right. So that is largely what the landscape looks like. So the question always is, okay, well, we see everything. That is the problem. How do we create create solutions? What is the solution? What is the solution? One of the reasons why I started the podcast and why I started posting what I, what I began posting on social media was to create conversation. First part to any bit of change or creating any semblance of results is identifying all of the things that are affecting us directly. 
and then also educating all of you and and pu- putting pulling things into light that you've been you know you've been blind to whether it's by choice or whether it's just you didn't know a lot of the people that we talk to are first time you know athletic parents in in regards to a different sport a lot more kids are exposed to a lot more sports so you might be a basketball dad but your kid now wants to play soccer you might be a football dad but now your kid wants to play basketball or volleyball or whatever the case may be so it's different it's different but it's not because we're still having the same conversations in basketball as we are in lacrosse as we are in hockey or as we are in football they're all the same conversations there's plenty of people similar to myself who are talking about the overindulgence in all of this this competitive environment it's it, we're overindulging we're we're being gluttonous in terms of what we want and not understanding how it affects us and not understanding what it's doing to our kids in the long run so what is it doing to our kids in the long run majority of your kids are overtrained i've talked about this why do i say that they're overtrained i want you to think about this i'll explain overtraining like this Imagine you have a pot of food, you're marinating something or some kind of sauce, right? And let's say you turn it up to the highest setting on the burner, right? And you leave it there with the lid on top. Let's say you leave it for like 10, 15 minutes. What do you think is going to happen to the sauce? It's basically going to burn the bottom, burn, stick to the bottom of the pan. A decent amount of it, right? Then that takes a while to clean off. And if if it does, you know, if it doesn't stain, depending on what kind of pot you got, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of you aren't taking into the account. Your kid is the pot. A lot of you don't know what your kid is truly capable of handling. You don't know. You didn't look at the description. You didn't look at your child and say, okay, my, my kid burns out at XYZ time. I need to make sure that I don't leave this burner on or whatever the case may be. The flame, the burner is the coach and their programming, the games, the pressure that you put on your kid to perform and do more and run, run, run because you feel as though that they're out of shape and they're lazy and they're not doing enough. When in reality, they have no control. Again, you were the one who put the pot on the stove. You put the lid on top of them, which is that pressure, which is that additional heat, which is you Breathing down their neck saying, you're not doing enough. You're lazy. This kid made this team. You need to make this team. If you're going to be serious about this, yada, yada, yada. That's the lid on top. And then you turned it up and the coach is, he's he or she is doing seven days a week, nonstop, one sport. Seven days a week. And you're expecting that your kid isn't going to get burned. You're expecting something different to happen you're expecting the pot to be uh, to be all right after you just went left it and you know you're not paying attention to it no that's not how it works now i want you to imagine this if i take that pot and i put it on medium right so about halfway instead of all the way to the top all the way to the high setting if i only put it on half only put it on medium and I watch it and I monitor it and I also stir it. So I'm watching it, I'm paying attention. Okay, is he fatigued? Um, um, is it burning? To, is he burning out too quickly? Um, is she 
you know, is it time for me to season it? Is it time for me to nurture it? Is it time for me to, to, to feed it, make sure that it's hydrated, make sure that my kid is strengthened, uh, make sure that my kid has rest, make sure that my kid has the capacity to actually be able to think um, about what they want to do. And if this is a choice of theirs versus me pushing them or versus their coach pushing them or versus it being peer pressure. Right. And then before the pot really starts to get to a point to where it may start sticking, I then transfer it to another pot. The burner isn't on, but I just transfer the liquid. I transfer the sauce into another pot. What do you think would happen as a result? The sauce would then cool down gradually. It would recover. And that is essentially the process of overtraining. You are leaving your kids on 100 plus saying, I want you to work, 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 working them into the ground. And it is breaking down every bit of sustenance that you are looking to gain from said food group. You want your kids to have more, but the problem is you're not paying attention to it. The problem is you are not nurturing it. The problem is you aren't gauging the intensity, the heat of it. You're just throwing it in a pot and saying, all right, cook. And what happens? It'll burn out. So then not only do you lose a bit of the sauce, you then have to make some more, right? You then have to make some more. Or have to wash the pot out. And that'll take some time. Unless the pot is truly damaged. Because again, we're not assessing what the kid is truly capable of. What the pot is truly capable of handling. Because it comes with instructions. It says, don't go beyond set temperature. Or make sure you blah, blah, blah. Because of the X, Y, Z. And so now the pot is truly damaged. And it will always have that blemish or mark. Which is an injury. It's an injury waiting to happen. And as the easiest way that I could explain in a non-scientific terminology point of view, what overtraining is. Allow room to cook. Allow room to be able to adequately put together a concise meal that you're paying attention to. We talk about it all the time. There's two different types of cooks. There's the ones who just put whatever on and they go to the other room and then they hear the microwave or whatever beeping like seven, eight times and they go, oh crap, I forgot I left whatever on. Or it's the person who's actively there making sure that everything is moving. They're dicing whatever vegetables that they need. They're putting whatever whatever ingredients together. They're making sure that they season it at the right time, whatever, let it simmer for X, Y, Z amount of time. Okay, we want to broil it, different techniques or whatever. The best kind of food is going to be one that is treated and cooked with care. The worst kind of food is the one that you neglect. Think about that. I'll let that simmer. Ah, that was a good joke. <laughs> so kids are overtrained. Why are they overtrained? And how does that apply in... um? the athletic terminology or what it is, whatever it is that you're experiencing. So we talk about specialization, early specialization, um, players just starting off 
playing competitively at seven, eight, nine years old, only playing one sport, not having the capacity. I'll do a completely different video pertaining to that and elaborate on that more. But ultimately, it comes down to your kids are playing too many games and nobody really knows what the right amount of games are or should be. And I'll tell you this, we're trying to train kids like pros before their body has developed into pro capacity. That's what we're trying to do. And unfortunately, it's not working out for us, which is one of the reasons why we have the highest rates of long-term injuries, ACLs, Achilles, MCLs ever in sports, in a multitude of different sports, in a multitude of different ages, primarily in youth ages. So it's important to have some semblance of balance, but it's also more important to know exactly what it is that you truly want out of this. A lot of the advertisement and branding that goes around all of this is in relation to, I can get your kid to college on a division one scholarship. Let's break that down a little bit. I calculated the average amount that a parent would spend starting at U8 competitively, U8, U9 competitively. And it was $10,000, $10,000 roughly. Matter of fact, I'll bring up the, um, I'll bring up the sheet for you so we can go over the amount together, right? Let's say average cost of club ranges between $2,000 and $5,000 per kid. So we'll go off of a $3,000 average. So we're going to start off at $3,000. Now, a lot of your kids, we talk about it all the time. Your kids are not getting enough, yada, yada. So that means that you're going to go to a personal trainer. The average cost of a personal trainer in the United States, $70 per session. Now, you'll likely do that once per week on average, which is 52 sessions, 52 weeks, which is $3,640. So you're now at $6,640. So... We won't tally into, or when I did this, I didn't tally in ID camps, college ID camps. So we'll focus just on the summer and winter camp costs, which will normally run you between 300 and 500 a week. Typically people do one winter and two summer camps. So let's say $400 average would be $1,200, right? Um, add two new pairs of cleats each year because your kids are actively growing. So that's $400, about $200 each because they normally want the best whatever. Um, and maybe I'll make a video to teach you how to save money on, on cleats. Um, the average price for two people for hotel weekend stays was $407 as per the national average or whatever that I looked at online. So let's say you do six tournaments per year and we won't count the away game hotel nights like just in your conference. So that's $2,442 for the total cost of the year from a, hyper, a hypothetical perspective. Um, the average cost of flights was $378 per person. One parent and, and your youth athlete, that's $756. So ECNL, you're doing at least three tournaments out of state. So that's $2,268 just on flights. So we're at $12,950 per year per kid. And we haven't covered car rentals. We haven't covered gas. We haven't covered food. And I'm going to try to put this into perspective for a lot of you. Um, in addition to the perspective that I already gave you from the um, 
previous uh one of the previous podcast episodes pertaining to the uh secret billion dollar youth industry um between 8 and 17 the ages of 8 and 17 you will have spent a minimum average of 1160 uh 116,000 sorry long day $116,550 now the average cost of tuition for in-state is $102,828 the average for out-of-state is $176,056 so the only thing so you're you're talking about wanting to get reinvestment right a return on your investment so you are going to spend $116,000 in 10 years span of time on average. That could go more, that could go less. You could be spending 15,000, you could be spending 16, some people have spent 20, et cetera. It's only going to increase in terms of cost, which is one thing that we're actively fighting against. So if your objective is to gain a scholarship, why not just save that money and just pay for it out of pocket? But the allure is, okay, we'll get you this for free. When in reality, it's not really for free. You're paying for it. Now, granted, you're paying over, paying for it over a 10 years span of time. But who's to say that they are going to be successful with whatever venture to actually be able to. So not only will you have paid $116,000, but let's say they quit the sport beforehand. Let's say that they have a career ending injury. These are all things that are very credible situations that I've seen personally. Or players, you know, they thought that they were going to get that Division One scholarship offer and then they only got Division Twos. It happens. You may have played better than, you know, the the other girl on the team or whatever, but because she knows X, Y, and Z, she got into Duke and you're now playing at, you know, your local community college. It happens. I've seen hundreds of players playing at community colleges who easily easily could have played division one easily but they didn't have the opportunity they didn't have access they didn't have the money to go to these tournaments whatever the case may be and that's slowly what's going to happen where certain players certain individuals certain talent are going to be priced out of just being able to compete simply within the game so like i said you may potentially could pay double. It's a 50-50 chance that you could pay double. Double the amount that you paid. And not only would you then, one, you're paying over a 10, 10 years span of time. The other one could be another 10 years span of time. And who's to say that whatever degree that they get will then have any return. So that could be a 20-year, that's a loss. If I'm purchasing a house for that, I want to be able to build the value of it over time. Right. I want it to be able to mean something. If I purchase a house 10 years later, the estimated value of said house should have doubled or tripled potentially. And then if I sell it, I should be able to recoup that. 
but that's not what happening what's happening for your kids so one hundred and two thousand dollars in state one hundred and seventy six thousand dollars in state but you're on average going to pay out one hundred and sixteen thousand it's not adding up now keep in mind colleges have scholarship limits the average limit limit fun fact the average limit for soccer is 10 scholarships for men's and 14 for women's that's for soccer top colleges like ucla have rosters of 30 plus players that means half of them aren't even on a full ride scholarship which means the likelihood of your child being the one who obtains a collegiate scholarship, a full-ride scholarship, after a 10-year span of time with the way that the system is where they're not truly developing players, is very, very slim. Which means that that 50-50 now becomes more like a 30-70-20-80. Where you're going to pay $116,000 out of your pocket and your child will not be going to UCLA, Duke, Stanford or whatever on scholarship. Yeah, they may get into the school, but they're not going to be on scholarship. So what does that say? That means that we have to do a better job at planning at understanding what needs to happen in order to change things for ourselves. Can't be overly reliant on clubs. You can't be overly reliant on coaches. I know, I know, I know they are supposed to be the professionals. They are the, the people who are supposed to be spearheading, moving in the right direction, moving in the right way. But the reality of it is this is a numbers game. And so long as the numbers are in their favor, they are going to deem it to be a success. And they're not going to stop until the powers that be, until the heads, until the top structure Stop being childish and say, we're going to do better for our kids nationally. We're going to make sure that there's mandates. We're going to make sure that there's better education. We're going to make sure that there are limitations on how much they can train and whatever. So this is the small part of a larger conversation that is going to continue to happen over years. We're just ahead of the curve. So being ahead of the curve, we need to make sure that we do our due diligence and making sure that these conversations remain ever present um, and prevalent. We want to also make sure that we're keeping an open mind, whether you agree or disagree with the message, whether you agree or disagree with the facts. At the end of the day, we're getting people to talk and have conversations about things that could potentially be a problem. I've had plenty of times where people have, you know, come to me and said, oh, I disagree or whatever. And then they come back six months later and their kid is in PT or whatever, and they say, you know what? I didn't understand what you meant until. And all I want at the end of the day is to make sure that that never happens. Because regardless of whether or not you agree with me or not, or you agree with whomever else is talking about uh, uh, your kids being overtrained and it being too much or whatever the case may be, at the end of the day, I want what's best for this next generation. At the end of the day, I'm fighting for the same thing that you're fighting for. We may just be communicating it in a different way. And I may have a different viewpoint as to how I want to achieve it or what it is that I want to achieve with this. But ultimately, like I said, this is a smaller conversation to a bigger issue, bigger topic, and a bigger conversation that will be had at some point in time. And you're only going to hear it here on the Hybrid Theory Podcast.